So I have a baby led weaning cabinet in my kitchen. It's where I store all of the feeding gear that we use for work. It's 100% easy peasy. And actually some of the easy peasy suction mats and bowls in there are more than seven years old at this point, still going strong. I know you guys already have a lot of baby gear in your house, but when it comes to feeding gear, the Easy Peasy products are beyond compare. Everything Easy Peasy makes is designed by their infant feeding expert. She also happens to be my good friend and colleague, Dawn Winkleman. She specializes in baby led weaning, and we were just chatting that the tiny cup that she designed for Easy Peasy, which was the first ever baby led weaning cup, it's now five years old. She sent us a prototype to try out with our twins when they were doing their 100 first foods, and now it's won all sorts of awards, and their feeding line has expanded so much. I love that when we start babies on the tiny line, of easy peasy feeding gear, they're getting developmentally appropriate tools to help them succeed at self-feeding. So when your baby turns one, you size up to the mini line for toddlers, then it's into their happy line for bigger kids. Easy peasy has a new basics line. I mean, like their, their website's so big now. Like we've been using that one for our own kids right now. Dawn designed all of those products and it's been so fun to see our family grow kind of in line with the growth of the easy peasy feeding line. They're also going backwards though, because they are revolutionizing the pre-feeding space. So even if your baby hasn't started solid foods yet, there are some great pre-feeding tools that Easy Peasy is now making. You can check it all out at easypeasyfun.com. My affiliate discount code for Easy Peasy is Katie 10 I think that code is like seven years old too at this point. I love using the Easy Peasy products in my house for my own kids, as well as the babies that I work with in my infant feeding practice, and that I hope the Easy Peasy gear is as helpful to your family as it has been to mine. That code again is Katie 10 for all of the fabulous feeding gear over at easypeasyfun.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Is the argument really about meat versus no meat, or are we fighting about the wrong thing? Are vegans, vegetarians, and ethical meat eaters really on the same side? And maybe we just need a better food system. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby-led weaning. Hey guys, welcome back. Today's episode, talking about meat. And in particular, I am interviewing a different kind of dietitian. I've got Diana Rogers on today. She has written a book called Sacred Cow. She's just releasing and produced a movie called The Sacred Cow. She's all about the importance of eating animal products and with an emphasis on beef. Now, if you are a strict, full-blown plant-based person, vegan, this is probably not going to be the episode for you and you might just want to skip to another one. But if you're interested in a little bit of the nuances of selecting meats, like I know for one, when I go to the grocery store, I'm always like, oh, what is like, what is grass-finished, grass-fed? What is pasture-raised? What does hormone-free, antibiotic-free mean? She's touching on some of those issues that face us as consumers. So I wanted to have her on to talk about selecting meat and animal products from a sustainability standpoint. And Diana's work is unique. She is not your typical dietitian. As I said, she kind of described herself as a rogue dietitian and like 
listen, as someone who teaches baby led weaning and a dietitian, like in a world where all dietitians ever learn about and teach about is traditional spoon feeding, I myself could be considered a rogue dietitian. So I actually really appreciate her perspective as we do with all topics. You take everything with a grain of salt. But I like Diana's work because she kind of drives it down to listen. There's three main issues when we're talking about animal foods. We're talking about the nutritional benefits of it, the environmental impact, and then the ethical considerations. So I think you'll kind of hear those messages laced throughout the interview with Diana today. Again, this is Diana Rogers. She's a registered dietitian and she talks a lot about the case for meat, but she always qualifies that with the case for better meat. Well, hello, Diana. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It's great to speak with you. I'm so honored to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. So as a registered dietitian, I am so fascinated by your background and I know you're a registered dietitian as well. I was wondering if you could just tell our audience a little bit about the work you do and then how you got to be in a position where you are a dietitian specializing in this very unique area. Yeah. I mean, so my current, what I'm doing is I have a part-time nutrition clinic where I help people. I mostly focus on moms. Uh, That's just who tends to gravitate towards me. Folks who are looking to either lose weight or fix gut health. Those are the two sort of specialties. And actually lately though, during COVID, I've had a ton of like binge eating and stuff like that. So it's really interesting to me. I'm kind of didn't really work a lot with that population, but it's just kind of come out, I think, of COVID. So I'm learning more about that. I think it's really interesting. And then the other part of my time, just to mix things up a little bit, is I just finished producing and directing a film called Sacred Cow, The Case for Better Meat. And I released the book this past summer. So I'm doing a lot around the promotion and advocacy for especially meat, the value of meat for women and children worldwide, and really sort of debunking all of the concerns around meat. So it's sort of attacked on three levels. And it's really beef that I'm focused on, but I'm pro all animal source foods. But it's, you know, we've got the nutrition arguments, meat's going to cause cancer and heart disease and all of that. We've got the environmental case against me, cow farts are ruining the planet. They take too up too many resources. Why not just eat directly from crops if, you know, it's inefficient to eat meat. And then we have all the ethical concerns, of course, around meat. And I address ethics last in the book because I feel that you really have to fully appreciate the nutritional environmental contribution that well-raised animals can make before we can even talk about whether or not it's okay to you know, kill beautiful animals to eat them because it's you can't just start with that, right? And how I got here is a little windy. I had undiagnosed celiac disease as a child and was extremely um, malnourished and low muscle tone. Basically everything I ate just went straight through me. And I also had a lot of neurological issues from that too, just like words swirling around the page, kind of almost like a dyslexia kind of thing. And it wasn't until I was 26 when I got diagnosed and I couldn't believe that you could be allergic to wheat. I mean, I was like, that's what people eat, you know? Um, So it really took me by surprise and I gave up wheat and it did make a huge difference, but I also at the same time still kept going to my doctor saying, you know, I think I'm diabetic. Like, I don't know why I need to eat every hour or two, I was always had my gluten-free granola bars on me and all of that stuff. So I've always just been interested in like, how do I fix myself? Because gosh, if I miss lunch, I have like tunnel vision and I start sweating and, 
you know, just, it was horrible. And so I really entered the field of nutrition later in life just to figure out how to fix myself. And at that point, I then decided to become a dietitian with two little kids. And, you know, at the time it felt really overwhelming, but I just decided I really wanted that medical credential. I wanted to be able to take insurance and I wanted to have some credibility in the space. And so having that medical credential of RD really was important to me for all of the writing and speaking I do. And so I just made it my part-time job basically to, you know, take biochemistry and, and all these courses that I didn't take undergrad as an art major. And so it took me a very long time. It took me about seven years to complete it. And it was really rough because I was already sold on no processed foods and, you know, kind of the real food way of life as I was going through the program. And so it was tough for me. And especially when I was working in the hospitals and nursing homes, you know, where like boost is your only solution for Mm -hmm. everybody. It was just so depressing. So I'm really happy to be on the other side, to have my private practice where I can help people uh, who want to learn more about real food nutrition. And I don't have to necessarily follow guidelines of my boss telling me what to do in a more clinical setting. So at the same time, as my nutrition interest is unfolding and my, my nutrition education, until very recently, I was married to an organic farmer. So I've spent the last 18 years living on working farms, looking at the role of animals in an organic farm and really understanding that you can't have a sustainable closed loop system of growing food without animals, that they're critical to all all food production systems and all nature. And so as I was watching this global dialogue sort of unfold about like, you know, what diets are best for the planet and for human health, everybody in this space is gravitating towards vegetarian and vegan diets, or certainly we need to eat less meat, right? But there's, you know, we're eating way too much meat. And so I'm really one of the only people that's out there questioning this and, you know, saying like, hold on, are we really eating too much meat? Number one, are the studies against meat environmentally really accurate? And, you know, could cattle actually be one of our best tools at mitigating climate change? So you're not your traditional boost pushing dietitian is what you're saying. In no way. (laughs) I'm kidding. First of all, I cannot believe that you went back to school to do your dietitian credential when you had two kids. But I think it's super important because a lot of parents listening to the podcast will like write to me and be like, I'm really interested in nutrition. I think, you know, the work you do is really cool. I've been interested in this, but I really want to get that credential. And I just want you guys to hear that, that like, if you are passionate about something, still matters that you have the appropriate credential behind you. And it took you seven years to get your dietitian credential. And I'm certainly sure being a dietetics educator myself and a preceptor for the last 20 years, I know that a lot of what you learned in school probably ruffled your feathers and yet you still stuck with it. And I think our profession certainly needs more people who are questioning, yeah, you know, sugar-laden boost and ensure is like what a nutritional supplement should be like. Like I completely hear where you're coming from. And I think it is important to be having these conversations and that there's enough work for all dietitians. Like if you look at a lot of the problems facing our population today. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting because I keep trying to present it fancy and I'm going to apply again with my book and my film and hopefully we'll get more dietitians to 
be open to, you know, some of these ideas and the, the value of, of animal source foods, at and, least in nutritionally, because they're yeah, not even on board there. Yeah. And dietitians? No. I mean, in the traditional dietetics curriculum, I mean, I know how to make an egg foam, but I don't learn about the difference between grass and grain fed beef. Like it is incumbent upon, there has to be other outlets, I guess, for dietitians and future dietitians and parents and consumers to learn about these topics. My phone is bursting at the seams with photos of our kids. And over the years, I've tried all sorts of different ways to store and share them with family members. So for a while, I would just text out pictures to the grandparents. And then we tried a shared photo album. But some people were using Google Photos and others preferred Facebook Messenger for pictures. And the more kids we had, the messier it got. Then I stumbled across the Family Album app. The Family Album app was created to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with loved ones. It's a totally secure, personal haven for your family's memories. I love that there's no third-party ads, no unwanted eyes, and it's totally free. No more scrolling through endless feeds or searching folders to find the picture of the kid that you need right now. Another cool feature about the Family Album app is you can order eight free photo prints every month to be delivered to your home. Which, if you think about how quickly your baby is changing, it's really nice to have some tangible pictures to hold onto or share to document the last month of your baby's life. If you're looking to level up your photo sharing and organization game with a secure, one-stop, easy-to-use photo organization app, head over to the App Store, search Family Album, download the Family Album app, and start creating a legacy of love one photo at a time. I wanted to touch real quick on something you said in the intro, and it's kind of about this issue of quality over quantity. And my mom is actually a registered dietitian. I grew up with a family, like medium size exposure to meat. But after college, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal. So I lived in a primarily Hindu community who doesn't eat beef at all. And then traveled to, you know, different parts, lived in an area in northeastern Nepal, which is very close to like the Darjeeling area of India. But we also had a lot of Buddhist families that lived in the same community. So occasionally some people around me were eating certain types of meat, but mostly not beef. And what always struck me was like when there would be a holiday and you would get one ounce of goat meat and it was such a big deal, obviously a much more impoverished community in a rural area, but they really, really valued animal products in a way that I was like, if these people walked into a grocery store in the United States and saw like a 16 ounce porterhouse steak, like their head would explode. Not to mention like, I'm appreciating this one ounce of meat so much more because the quality and what it signifies is really different in this culture and community. Whereas sometimes in the United States, like you look at your traditional restaurant plate and it's like a massive slab of meat with some white carbs and no vegetables. So even though we both agree in the nutritional benefits of meat and for parents, taste and texture, et cetera, for the babies, but would you argue that there's something to be said about going lower on the quantity in order to assure that you're getting better quality? That's a really interesting question. I kind of, I looked at, So since 1970, our intake in America of beef has gone way, way, way down. So the typical American today eats about two ounces of beef per person. Two ounces per person per day. Uh Uh-huh. There's this perception, I think, that all Americans are like, you know, sitting down to a 72 ounce uh, tomahawk, you know, steak for dinner. But really what's happened is that our intake of processed foods has doubled. Our intake of industrially processed oils has gone way up. Our intake of chicken, which is less nutrient dense than red meat, has gone up 400%. And so we've just kind of shifted. And I think that protein is underrated. And I looked closely at the RDA for protein. The studies that 
support the classic RDA for protein, the 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, are based on these nitrogen balance studies, which are really flawed. And when I looked at the papers that researched what happens when people are fed more than the RDA of protein, what I found was that not only did people lose weight, but when they also combined that with exercise, in particular weightlifting, the weight that they lost was fat instead of just overall body weight. So, you know, there's a lot of diets where you can lose weight, but it's really the higher protein diets are the ones where you're losing fat instead of just weight. And we also know for children, the only randomized control trial that's been done on children with more meat versus less meat uh, found that the kids who got the more meat, this was done in Kenya with school children, compared to the ones that just got more dairy products or more calories, the ones who got the more meat did better academically, behaviorally, and physically in all three categories. And so that's where I just questioned, clearly we have a problem in our food system, right? With the factory farming and the way, you know, animals are treated and all of that. But I think the real villain here is our consumption of of ultra-processed foods. And animal source protein is really low in calories for what you're getting. It's incredibly a nutrient-dense food. And also protein is the most satiating macronutrient. So when you increase your intake of meat, you actually eat less of the other calories. And so I just think that, you know, more better meat might be. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying essentially as far as quality goes. And I completely agree with you with regards to the processed food situation. And that's, you know, the audience that's listening, I mean, we're talking about like the most satiating macronutrient, but for babies, they're just learning how to eat and learning how to listen and respond to their hunger cues. And I completely agree with you that the RDA for protein certainly could be updated, but I do just want to play the devil's advocate that people in the developed world, you were mentioning some studies in Ethiopia, and certainly the situation might be different in other parts of the world. But, you know, parents here are not running around with widespread protein deficiency. And yet they oftentimes give this undeserved health halo to protein. And they're like, my baby needs more protein. It's like, whoa, your baby needs to have a variety of different nutrients and learn how to eat protein. So I was wondering if you could help the parents that are just like learning about protein, knowing that, okay, we don't need to overdo it with protein. There are other nutrients babies need. But what are some tips that you would have for them if they're selecting proteins that they're going to start feeding to their baby? Well, the great thing about meat is it's not just protein, right? It has like really important fats too. So that you get all those important fat soluble vitamins and animal source foods contain almost all of the nutrients we need. And when, whenever there's a nutrient available in a plant or an animal, it's always more bioavailable and better for the body. But sorry, real quick, with the exception of carbohydrates, right. the animal products that you're mentioning don't provide carbohydrate. Or Micronutrients. Okay. So giving children, you know, even like a, a bone to gnaw on, you know, is like a teething bone. I've seen people do that, you know, like you finish your rib or something and the kids can just kind of work on it. As far as, you know, which animal source proteins are the most nutrient dense, we're looking at seafood off the charts, oysters and different, you know, fatty fish. And then um, as we move into the terrestrial animals, red meat and especially organ meats are going to be the most nutrient dense. So at the bottom of the list would be chicken, which is the most common meat that people, and there's certainly nothing wrong with chicken, 
But if we're looking at just the hierarchy of nutrient density and what we're getting for, you know, the calorie, it's definitely going to be seafood and, and organ meats followed by red meats. Could you talk a little bit about some of the greenwashing marketing terminology that's out there that a lot of us, myself included, fall victim to? Like you're at the store. What does hormone-free, what does free range? I mean, I know we can't like run through the tables of what they actually mean, but what are some things that parents who are like just in the grocery store, like what do you want them to avoid as far as claims on packaging that I guess that doesn't really matter? Yeah, I actually, well, we have for folks that are going to watch the movie, everyone will be directed to a page where we have um, different offers. And um, one of them is a, a guide to ethical sourcing. So there are so many different labels out there and it can be really confusing. And some of them do mean something and a lot of them don't. There's a lot out there, I think. So like grass-fed isn't really regulated. All beef is grass-fed. So it's really just, is it grass-finished? And again, there's no FDA oversight on that. So there's no one really saying, I mean, even meat that was raised in another country, but sent here to be slaughtered is called product of the USA. Like that's how crazy it is right now. It's so confusing. So if a cow has fed corn its entire life and then finished with grass, it can be called grass fed. Is that correct? Uh, Actually, it's the other way around. So all cattle start on grass. So there's no cows that are 100% in a factory farm. That's very different though from chicken and pork. Okay. There's a lot of benefits to going with red meat over chicken and pork because chicken and pork are, you know, in our industrial system, 100% of their lives, they're indoors eating grains where cattle actually, they don't do well um, on a feedlot their whole lives because they are ruminants. And so they all start out on a calf-cow operation, like in Montana or someplace, grazing with their moms. And then they're either finished on a feedlot or finished on grass. But again, that that grass-finished, you know, a lot of people can say grass-fed, but that's true of all meat is grass-fed. But most people, though, when they say grass-fed, they mean grass-finished beef. And it does taste a little bit different. It it tends to be leaner. It doesn't necessarily have to be leaner. I've had amazingly, you know, very fatty grass-fed beef too. But in general, it's leaner. There is a misconception that it's healthier. And so a lot of people will say, oh, well, it's better in omega-3s. Which beef's not a great source of omega-3s to begin with, right? Right. right? And and so that's, you know, as a dietitian, I always, I just caution because a lot of meat companies will want to have me endorse their products, right? You know, will you be our nutritionist to talk to the press to talk about the best, you know, reasons to eat our product? And I'm like, sure, but I'm not going to say it's healthier necessarily because it's just so insignificant. What about saturated fat, for example? Like I always think like as a not super well-informed consumer about sustainability, like I always thought, oh, well, if they eat grass and they're raised leaner, the saturated fat content of grass-fed beef is lower, but is it kind of like splitting hairs? Yeah, a little bit because you can always, you know, and a lot of cooking processes, you're taking the fat out anyway. Like in a burger, you're draining the fat. So like 80% versus 90%, if you're just going to drain the fat anyway, you know, doesn't really make that much of a difference. Grass-fed and grain-finished beef both have about the same ratio of saturated fat to monounsaturated fat. It's really just looking at those omegas. And what I like to tell people is, you know, if you're looking at a pie chart, and I actually use this in the book and and in my presentations, a pie chart, it is the skinniest little, little sliver of omegas versus 
the saturated monounsaturated. And so like two pennies is twice as much as one penny, but it doesn't mean you have a lot of money. And there, so you would still need to eat eight pounds of grass-fed beef to get the same omega-3s you can get in three ounces of wild salmon. Exactly. So eat fatty fish for the omega-3s, but also if you're looking at your overall ratio in your diet, just switching to grass-fed beef is not going to make a huge, huge difference to your overall health because the best way to fix your omega-3 to 6 ratio is don't eat processed food and just eat, you know, lots of vegetables and animal source foods. And there you go. Like that's the best way to reduce inflammation. Kind of along the same lines as the marketing and the greenwashing in the grocery store. Do you have any tips for parents about like products that are advertised as being hormone-free or antibiotic-free? Like that's something that I think is also largely misunderstood and just curious if you have like consumer tips for us. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, I got down a rabbit hole of, um, I do that sometimes. So thank you for redirecting me. So Cage-free eggs, for example, I don't really think that that's a great practice overall because chickens in a factory farm setting are very stressed out. They're very aggressive and the cages actually protect these chickens from pecking at each other. And so to put 10,000 chickens in a hen house just in a big lump is a really bad idea. And so I always recommend that folks try as hard as they can to support local farmers who are doing it at a smaller scale, buying directly from them um, and talking to them about their practices. Try to go visit the farm. You can buy a meat share from them often and, you know, look at the farm. It should smell good. (laughs) The animals should be outdoors, at least in the, in the growing season. And when I have to go to the grocery store, what I look for is pasture raised for eggs. And in the case of eggs, There is a massive difference between CAFO, traditional, just, you know, the cheapo eggs that you get in those styrofoam containers versus like a brand like Vital Farms or another brand that does pasture-raised. And you just mentioned CAFO. Could you just explain what that is real quickly? Sure. Concentrated animal feeding operation. So that would be, you know, there's rules about animal per square feet that would define exactly the CAFO, but basically it's, you know, these factory farms of animals. And I have a question because I um, have seven kids. So we buy a lot of stuff like in bulk, including eggs from Costco. But then in my farm box, whenever I get the farm fresh eggs, I'm always like, oh my God, these are so much better. And then my husband's like, we should get chickens. I'm like, we have seven kids. We can't get chickens. Why do the farm fresh eggs taste so much better? Is it, it's not, I mean, it's not like happier chickens make happier eggs. Like, is it the feed that they're fed that's different? Like literally the egg yolk looks better and tastes better in a farm fresh egg than the Costco ones. Totally. And they are definitely more nutrient dense, like by far. And it has to do with a chicken is a monogastric animal. So what they're eating goes directly into their eggs and their meat versus a cow is a ruminant. And so what they're eating is actually broken down by bacteria in their stomachs and then translated into fatty acids that go to feed the cow. So it doesn't make as big a difference, basically. In beef than chicken or in beef than eggs, excuse me. Right, right, right. So that's why pastured pork and pastured chicken and pastured eggs are nutritionally a better, and it just like also wild salmon is way healthier. But you also make a super good point about the difference in taste. And parents are always asking me, you know, do I have to buy organic? I'm like, listen, you do you and what works for you. But I, and they say, well, do you buy organic? I said, I buy what organic products I can afford and those that I feel taste better. And we're talking about helping our babies develop their taste preferences. Like I live in California, tomatoes taste 
awful here. I buy organic tomatoes because they taste better. Apples taste better when they're organic. A farm fresh egg tastes better. And to me, grass-fed beef tastes better. But I think we need to also remember that in addition to the nutrition, babies are also developing these flavor preferences. And we know that the greatest number of foods and flavors and taste and textures babies can be exposed to, that's what helps us raise independent eaters and prevent picky eating. So I think you're doing your family a service when you choose the items that do overall taste better, which is kind of in alignment with what I think I hear you're saying as well. Yeah. I mean, my kids can taste the difference between grass-fed milk and typical milk. They can taste the difference. Organic milk has been shown to be more nutrient dense, but more so than than meat, which is lower in fat. Okay. So what about milk? You're saying that it is more nutrient dense than conventionally grown raised milk? Yeah. So there's different nutrients that you can get in milk from grass-fed animals and organic. It's been documented. I've seen many studies on this. Conjugated linoleic acid, which is a, a really great fatty acid that's hard to get in other places, is higher in grass-fed organic milk. We also have more vitamin A and D in grass-fed milk. And it tastes better. Like my kids really, really prefer grass-fed milk to typical milk. So up in New England, we can get Maple Hill. And I don't actually drink milk because uh, when I was sick as a kid, milk just really didn't work for me. And so now as an adult, like drinking milk just seems, it's just a weird thing to me. But anyway, I watch my kids drink milk and they just guzzle the Maple Hill milk. Is grass-fed milk something you can buy at a regular grocery store? Like, I don't know that I've ever seen it, but maybe you've never been looking for it. Uh Uh-huh. Actually, well, yeah. Um, Maple Hill Creamery, as I mentioned, is a brand here in New England, but there, you know, people can look for pasture-raised milk out there. But a lot of those other claims like, you know, fortified with omega-3s or, you know, some of them are just complete sort of nutrient washing or green washing, you know, no hormones, for example. You know, that's also, in the case of meat, I looked at the differences in grass-fed versus typical beef and did not find any evidence that the diet, you know, the any glyphosate, for example, or antibiotic or anything actually ended up in the meat. So meat itself is nutrient dense. If you can support a local farmer and you prefer the taste of grass-fed meat, and there's certainly great environmental and ethical reasons to buy grass-fed meat, definitely do it. But to those moms that are struggling and just want to get nutrients into their kids, like buy eggs, they have choline, you know, like that's important. Well, and a great source of iron as well, Mm -hmm. which I think a lot of times we forget about. Right, right. And our audience is really familiar with eggs because as one of the big eight allergenic foods, we spend a lot of time talking about it. It's one of the earlier allergenic foods that we introduce, but I really appreciate your insight that you're saying looking for pasture raised eggs actually is a choice that you can make that might make a difference or does make a difference environmentally for sure. Nutritionally, it certainly does. And I think most people would agree that taste wise. So this is kind of covering that three-pronged approach that you're looking at in your materials, which is the environmental side of it, the nutrition side of it, and then of course the ethical side of it as well. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to ask just from a food safety standpoint, because you mentioned the pasture-raised milk, we are talking about feeding between six and 12-month-old babies. Parents know not to replace breast milk or formula with fluid cow's milk until after the time the baby is one, but it's perfectly fine to introduce dairy products. And we do so with lower sodium ones that are safe to feed. If you guys have questions about milk protein, make sure you go listen to my podcast episode. It's called Milk Protein, How to Introduce Your Baby to This Potentially Allergenic Food. Um, It's way back in episode 13, but that will kind of clear up some of this because parents here are like, wait, what? It's okay to have milk. 
Um, but is that pasture-raised milk, is that raw milk, meaning unpasteurized milk? Right. A lot of people, especially because I talk fast, I'll say pasture-raised and they'll, say, they'll think pasteurized. So those are two different things. So milk, I don't, it, it's really tricky. There are some people out there that feed raw milk to their kids and you can get it in certain states in some stores. I'm really torn about that one because as somebody who's like serve safe certified and knows the dangers, I think it can be, it can be sometimes really dangerous if you don't know the producer. Okay. I was like breathing a huge sigh of relief because I'm like, I'm going to have to add a disclaimer that I do not endorse the feeding of raw milk to babies just from a, I don't want to get into the process of whether or not it changes the nutrition content, but just from a food safety standpoint, are we both on the same page that we don't feed raw milk products to babies? Yeah. Way back in the day it was done, but way back in the day, there were also, you know, it was a cow. It came straight from the goat's teeth. Yep. And even in the poorest, farthest reaches of rural Nepal, where I was living, no matter how poor you were with minimal access to firewood or peat, every single family scalded their milk to kill any potential pathogens. And so I really do take it. I don't get involved a lot with some of the more political sides of food, but really the feeding of raw milk has no nutrition advantage for your babies. It's a safety precaution that you're taking and that you still can make more sustainable choices, but you don't have to put your baby in peril. Right, so pasture raised just means the animal was on grass. Okay, so we are not talking about feeding unpasteurized dairy products. We're talking pasture raised. Okay. No, no, and, but then okay. there's homogenized. But that's purely aesthetic, right? Just to distribute fat throughout the milk. Right, and so my kids don't love unhomogenized milk because it can be lumpy because homogenizing just means that you're taking those fat particles and you're distributing them evenly throughout the milk so you don't have cream on the top. But so many people get homogenized like so many consumers get homogenization confused with pasteurization and they're two totally different things with homogenization just being an aesthetic preferential thing for the distribution of fat. But pasteurization is there to help protect you from ingesting any harmful pathogens. So they're two totally different things. But parents see homogenized and pasteurized milk, which at a traditional grocery store, all milk is homogenized and pasteurized. Mm -hmm. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and works with your lifestyle as a parent or caregiver. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on the journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. And getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially because we're always growing and changing. And I think this is particularly true for parents. because I know firsthand how you can feel torn between your old baby-free, carefree self and this new, very challenging role of parenting a small person. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding, as well as talking through, things that can help you know what you want or why you react the way you do. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month today. Okay, any final tips for parents who are like, uh, I go to the store and I look at the meat aisle and there's like all these options when they're just trying to pick animal foods for their families, like maybe top three tips if you're at the grocery store. Sure. One is if you're strapped for money and budget is really a problem, I still think that beef is going to be the best choice nutritionally, environmentally, and ethically. 
even if it was feedlot finished. And I go into that more in the book. Like what about hormones and antibiotics? Is there anything we should be on the lookout for or just ignore? Totally ignore. It's so funny because nuance is so not easy. (laughs) Well, that's good though. I just want to make sure we're not missing any like major red flags. Like, oh, that's totally bogus. Animal given antibiotics are a huge problem for the environment and for our overall health when it comes to antibiotic resistant bacteria that, you know, that can cause sepsis. And, you know, we don't have any more antibiotics on coming out. Like we just don't. And so we need producers to stop just using so many antibiotics in our food system because they get into the environment and then that causes problems. But as far as, you know, will this antibiotic then translate into, oh, my kid is now full of this weird antibiotic that was given to the animal? No, there's a lot of testing done and things are pretty, pretty stringent in America. I have had people send me studies, you know, showing higher rates of drugs in antibiotics in animals, but they were not in the US. And I looked really really deeply at the testing that's done here. And it is, it is safe to just, you know, meat is healthy basically. And it's important, just really important for child development. And so I would go for fatty fish and red meat as, as the number one um, liver. If, I mean, I got my kids to, they, the more tentacles, the better for them. Like they love chicken hearts and squid and octopus. And like, I was super, super adventurous with them when they were little. And now they're the most amazing eaters. And we will go to a Brazilian restaurant and they're like more chicken hearts, please. Wait, really? You have teenagers that eat chicken hearts? Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah. So I guess, you know, like get them excited, like cook a whole fish, like on the bone, a whole fish in the oven. So they can see that that actually came from an animal. Because I think also our kids are just too removed from the fact that what they're eating was actually a living thing. And I, so when they grow up and they realize that they have a problem with it, I think they need to understand that this animal was a living thing. We should honor the fact that it died for our health, but that there is no life that lives forever and everything is just recycled nutrients, right? Like we're just, it goes life death, decomposition, and then life again. Like that's just how it works. And I think, you know, when kids only see the meat coming in plastic packages, boneless, skinless chicken breasts, it's really, you know, it really sets them up for being really confused when they get older. And, you know, I've just seen a lot of problems. I've read your book, Sacred Cow. How is the movie different? I'm just curious, because like this podcast episode is going to be coming out just before the premiere, if you could tell us like a little bit about that, because I know it's kind of like the next prong of your approach. Sure. Yeah. So we are going to be offering uh, through my website, sacredcow.info. People can click the link right on the homepage and register to watch the film for free. We're offering it for one week only, November 22nd through the 30th, and then it's going to go away and, you know, be up on the mainstream platforms starting this winter. So later on, but I really wanted a chance to just offer it to those kind of in the real food space a little bit earlier, since I had so much support from this community. The book sort of equally goes into nutrition, environment, and ethics. It's like sort of this like three phase book. And the film does touch on nutrition and ethics pretty strongly, but the bulk of the film is the environmental argument. We really went around in circles trying to figure out 
you know, is this a docu-series where we have one episode just on nutrition and one episode just on environment or something? But, you know, those, they're expensive to make. It was a lot of energy for me to raise the money. I've never made a film before. And fundraising is definitely not something that was in my skill set. They also don't teach that at dietitian school. <laughs> oh my gosh. Or filmmaking for that matter. I mean, I basically now have like a full master's degree on film and documentary filmmaking. So it was fun for me because as I mentioned, my undergrad is in art, art education, actually. So I think my skill is translating science visually and into words and and stories that someone without a master's degree can understand and relate to. And so I have a ton of graphics that I share on Instagram. Um, My Instagram is at Sustainable Dish. And Diana, tell us where the audience can go to learn more about your work, including the movie. We'll link everything up in the show notes for this episode if you guys go to blwpodcast.com. But where can we go to learn more about you? Sure. Yeah. So my website, sacredcow.info has, you know, info on the book. Uh, The book's just available, you know, anywhere books are sold. The film will be screened for anyone for free. Just enter your email address and we'll send you a link. And uh, that, again, is going to be just November 22nd through 30th. And we actually picked that week because it's Thanksgiving week. And, you know, there can sometimes be those tense conversations at the dinner table about, meat versus no meat. And we really asked that question in the film, are we all really on the same side? And are we arguing about the wrong thing? Is it really, you know, meat versus no meat? Or is it really, you know, do we need a better agriculture system? And you can find me on Instagram at Sustainable Dish. And then my website for kind of overall nutrition and my nutrition practice is SustainableDish.com. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Diana Rogers. I warned you, not your typical dietitian, right? I can't say I agree with 100% of everything Diana teaches or is about, but I really did appreciate learning a little bit more about some of those nuances, certainly like when you're at the grocery store. Like, okay, I know that farm fresh eggs taste better, but now I'm going to make more of an effort to buy them. They definitely cost more though. So there's always the trade-off. And if you remember at the outset, Diana was kind of talking about the three-pronged approach to what she teaches, which is just taking into consideration when you're selecting animal foods and namely meat, that we're looking at, okay, what's the nutritional implication here? What is the environmental consideration? And then certainly what's the ethical consideration? So I'll link up all of the resources that Diana talked about on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at blwpodcast.com forward slash 76. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Like a lot of moms out there, I will totally admit I am quite type A. I am a total task master. And one of my weekly work tasks is to review the feedback forms that our new students in my program, which is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro, that they leave for us. So basically, this form asks a lot of questions about you and your baby and your baby's feeding and medical history, any concerns that you might have or fears about starting solid foods. And all of this data helps me when I'm answering parent questions inside of our weekly live office hours so I can then tailor my response to your particular baby and situation, right? Because it's not a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to what your baby's eating, right? Because maybe your baby has an egg allergy or another mom in the program. She might really be struggling with how to make meat safe because she doesn't like to cook. So this week on the forum, there's a new mom named Janine, and she wrote, and this is her quote, I researched a lot on the internet, and I have a lot of books. I saw a lot of other baby-led weaning programs, but in the end, this is the one that I realized 
realized is what I'm really looking for as a new mom. I love that Katie's program has a community and that there are videos for everything you need to know and how to make the foods. And what I love the most is that there's already a meal plan ready. And this just like stopped my heart because this is exactly why I created the Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro program. I wanted to literally put everything that you need to know about starting solid food safely in one place with a super easy to follow 20 full weeks meal plan. Okay, there's 20 weeks because it's five foods a week. I want your baby to get to those 100 new foods before they turn one because I also know you have a lot going on as a new mom and hunting and pecking all over the internet to try to figure out what am I going to feed this baby? That is not the solution. So if you want to check out the Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro program, I would be honored to work with you and your baby. You can head to babyledweaning.co to get started and hopefully I'll be reading your feedback soon too.